Yes, and then here are the final three. We begin with MD versus Abbott. Mr. Hughes. May it please the court. Plaintiffs are not entitled to injunctive relief because they failed to meet their heavy burden of proving the three elements of constitutional culpability, causation, and class-wide harm. First, as to culpability, the district court contravened Supreme Court and circuit precedent by effectively constitutionalizing best practices and by substituting a negligent standard for the stringent due process liability standard of deliberate indifference to a substantial risk of serious harm. Second, as to causation, the district court improperly presumed that plaintiffs' harms are directly caused by defendants' policies as opposed to the horrific abuse and neglect that plaintiffs suffered before entering foster care. And third, the district court erroneously found class-wide harm by embracing a risk of being at risk theory that the Supreme Court has rejected uh, by ignoring evidence that Texas generally satisfies the federal government's demanding standards for safety and permanency in foster care and by extrapolating the patently atypical experiences of 12 hand-picked named plaintiffs to the entire class of 12,000 PMC children. So are you, are you still pressing the... the uh the class issue here? The class certification yes. issue, Your Honor? We are. We have made that point, but we believe that the court likely need not reach it because after the trial on the merits with all the evidence on the table, uh, the same failings, uh, instead of reviewing under the abuse of discretion standard for certification, the court can simply look at the evidence and see that, for example... I suggest uh, that we're the validity of the class in any event, doesn't it? <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, Judge Higginbotham? Your observation sort of validates the existence of the class, that the, we need not do that if you decide the merits. But to go ahead, I heard you. Well, of course, we, we, can, uh, we, we, we can appeal certification at this point, and we have, but like I said, it's, 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 it's not moot exactly, but the, the fact that the court can review all the evidence means. I understand means, your position. Uh, thank you. I'll start, if, if I may, with the, the largest issue in the case, that of caseworker caseloads. It is hardly conscience shocking for a state not to adopt caseworker caseload caps based on uh, aspirational best practice standards that other states do not follow, the federal government does not require, and even the district court recognized are not constitutional minima. The it, I mean, because it, it, it strikes me that, that, that those caseloads are sort of like our caseloads. There are cases that are easy to determine and cases that are more difficult setting up Setting a flat number just doesn't, doesn't seem to make any sense as far as I can see. That's exactly right, uh, Judge Smith. And, and not only are, are the cases different, uh, the caseworkers themselves have, some have more experience, some have less, some can take on heavier loads, and some may have, for example, a, a caseload of very uh, basic needs children who don't need as much attention can take a much heavier caseload than uh, a caseworker who has a caseload consisting of higher needs children. Doesn't it, doesn't it also matter in terms of, I mean, Texas has some geographic areas where just the travel distances would indicate that it would make a large number of caseloads more difficult to handle, but if they're all in a local area, they might be a lot easier. That is also true, and that is the, the very reason uh, that the legislature uh, pushed DFPS a number of years ago uh, to adopt the, what we call the ICU a secondary caseworker program where we have, because children sometimes need to be uh, moved out of their county, for example, to a specialized treatment facility, everyone agrees you cannot have 
residential treatment facilities, these kind of specialized facilities in all of You don't think there's anything wrong with the caseload? You don't think there's anything wrong with the caseload of district court's findings? That's not correct. Uh, let me clarify your question. Are you saying do we disagree with the court's facts? Well, you can't, you can't keep caseworkers down there. If you look at the numbers, what happens is they, they last maybe a year, a half percentage of them fall out the first year, and it's constant turnover. In fact, the people that are in permanent management will only see a caseworker a couple of times a year at best. And then you have the CY, the CU, CU category, which is a fill-in for caseworkers, just to go in and check in to see that the, the child is still there. So you have children going through that for years and seeing a caseworker two to three times, and they're moved multiple times from different places. Your Honor, I I, I, I don't understand your, your, your assertion that the case workload is not, that seems to be the, the, one of the large difficulties here. And to be clear, we're not saying that caseloads are not a problem. We are not saying that some caseworkers are not uh, overloaded. They are. We have worked very hard to bring caseworker caseloads down, and we recognize the very problems your Honor. What, what have they done to bring down the caseload? Uh, they've hired additional caseworkers. They've also had a number of uh, steps that have been implemented to retain caseworkers because, as you point out, the problem is not just that, uh, you know, we can hire caseworkers, but if we don't keep them, that's also a problem. But they'll so, keep them because of, because of the finding of the district court, they're, so, they're stretched so thin that they, they give up. And this is not exactly an energetic, it's a tough, tough work for anybody. I think everybody would agree to that. Uh, but but you, that turnover rate is is because you're given, according to the district court's findings, is because they, you're giving them far more work than they could do meaningfully. But again, Your Honor, the, the due process standard is not, are some caseworkers overworked? The due no, process the, standard the is- The question is whether or not when you take a child into custody, you, have, you expose them to an unreasonable risk of harm. Now, even a, even a pretrial prisoner is entitled to, to very much the same standard. But, but a child who is not there voluntarily becomes a custodian of the state because you've terminated their parental rights, then you owe that constitutional duty. And that, so our question is, is this an unreasonable risk of harm? Correct? Right, I disagree with the, for, for, for liability under due process, uh, and the district court acknowledged it and plaintiffs acknowledged they have to show uh, deliberate indifference to a substantial risk of serious harm. And I don't see how anyone can say that we're deliberately indifferent to, to the caseload issue. All states struggle with, with caseloads. It's, and all states struggle with turnover with caseloads. It's a very difficult job to do, and it's emotionally draining job. And a lot of people do leave after a shorter period of time because they just can't do the work. It takes a very special person uh, to, to be a, a caseworker. And Texas is not unique in that. Practically way. speaking, I your how numbers, is this ever going to This, this oh, is a perpetuating system. As I, as I look at this, what you have coming into the system, like you have 23,000 kids, but then you have, as they go from the, from the temporary to the permanent, that, that reduces. But then when they, they come out at the age 18, you have like 47% of the females come out of there are pregnant in the first year, and a high percentage of those come right back into the system again. Let me be clear about that. The 47% statistic, Your Honor, is not 47 percent of the of people it is the I mean it's the when you look at the age out population it's 47 percent of of children of females who are aging out 
But plaintiffs did not say that Texas is out of line with other states in terms of the number of people who age out. All states have that problem. And you may have a correlation in terms of children who age out of the population. It may be that all I'm suggesting to you is that this system is almost self-perpetuating because you have a significant number of people who are coming back into the system who are the children of people who have come through the system. And every state, Your Honor, I would say has that problem. I understand that. Let's talk about this one for a moment. Do you agree with that? There certainly is some number of children who have that. But the question is, is it our policies and practices that are causing that, or is it because they're preexisting abuse and neglect? And the way to look at that is, as the plaintiffs acknowledged, you can do a study of a random representative sample. Preexisting abuse and neglect. The people we're describing it have been for years, the children have been for years in your system. And they have been seen by caseworkers only a handful of times. So if it's self-perpetuating, it's happening while they're in your system. Your Honor, I disagree that the evidence in this case shows that these children are being seen by caseworkers only a handful of times. And if the system were true, if the data, I'm sorry, but as I read the data, I'm wrong. I thought that when you move to the permanent category of management, that they're aging out during that period of time, that many of those children only see a caseworker at a maximum of two or three times a year. Your Honor, they see the caseworker once a month. All children do, whether they're in TMC or in PMC. And let me just point out that if it were true, as the district court. A caseworker or this? The ICU worker. Check to see if you're their worker. It doesn't matter. The ICU worker is taking the place. Perhaps it doesn't matter. But when you say caseworker, are you saying both caseworkers and also a worker? I forget the definition. The ICU? The ICUs, yes. ICUs. And by the very definition, as I read this record, what they do is to go to confirm that the child is still there. Your Honor, that is a, there was, some people characterize it as that's all they're doing. But there was also testimony in the record from plaintiff's own witnesses that the ICU workers spend an hour with children. That was in the testimony, for example, of Sandra Carpenter. But let me make a quick point to get, that goes directly to your question. An hour and then you see them four times at best a year. Once a month. ICU caseworkers are seeing them once a month, or they're required to see them once a month, just like the regular caseworkers are. The point is, if this were really true, as plaintiffs allege and the district court claimed that this was this completely Dickensian system, you know, where nothing was going right and caseworkers were so overwhelmed they couldn't do anything, how is it possible that Texas would be satisfying the federal government's rigorous standards, ambitious national standards for maltreatment and permanency in foster care? Now, I know they claim that the statistics for the maltreatment, they say, well, you know, we manipulate those somehow. That's not true. But even if it were, that doesn't explain how we're doing so well on the permanency statistics. Do you keep track of child-on-child abuse? We do keep track of it, but not in the centralized method that the district court prefers. Don't report it. I'm sorry? Don't report it. It is captured in this way, Judge Clement. When we're looking at, when RCCL is going out to investigate an incident of child, of reported abuse in a licensed facility, what they're looking to do is to see, has the facility done something wrong? And so they're looking to see, did, obviously, did one of the caregivers themselves, were they abusing the child, if that's what was reported? Or were they negligent in their supervision of the children in their care? Because that's the only way, if something happened 
where they weren't negligent, then that may not get recorded in terms of abuse and neglect statistics, but it does get recorded in the files of the individual children, both in their common application and in the files that the CPA, that the Child Placing Agency, maintains. But it doesn't reflect anything against the institution, right? If there was not a finding made of neglectful supervision, then that is correct. How could there not be a finding of neglectful supervision if you're having child-on-child abuse within the facility? Because there are, the way that that would happen, for example, sometimes children have reported to be sexually aggressive or otherwise require heightened supervision contractually that the caregiver is required to, for example, if they have a lack of impulse control or something like that. When they're admitted, you mean? Correct, when they're admitted. It's a known problem. If it's a known problem and it's in the record, and then if something happens at night, for example, then they would be neglectful for having failed to monitor the child. But if there's no indication of that in the record, then effectively you're just holding the facility strictly liable just because kids, unfortunately the reality is, sometimes do engage in some problematic conduct, particularly if they have been themselves, they call it sexualized by prior abuse. And that's an unfortunate reality. But again, that happens in every state. That's a problem. And I don't think that there's a practical solution to that. I mean, the district court has suggested, well, everyone should have their own individualized placement in a single home. But again, you can't make people be foster parents and you can't... How are these numbers ever going to work out if you're hiring more caseworkers but you're also taking in more foster children? How is it ever going to be resolved? I know you've gotten millions of dollars from the state legislature. And that's a problem that Texas has been dealing with. It's just that we do go out and we work hard to solve the problem. We ask for more money from the legislature. They give us money when they have it. We have great programs to try to retain more caseworkers. But then more kids come into the system. And the reality is with the demographics, Texas has one of the highest child poverty rates in the country. We are responsible for most of the child growth in the country over the last decade. And so basically the question is, remember, it's the deliberate indifference standard. It's not, are there problems that... Well, 25 to 30 percent of the kids that age out of your foster system go back into extended foster care. So you don't have a problem. Well, Your Honor, the fact that we make extended foster care available to them after 18 I think is a good thing. I mean, we wish that not every child needed to do that. But the fact that we're not just cutting everyone loose at age 18, as the plaintiff suggests, we have a variety of programs, including extended foster care. We have a program of sort of supervised independent living that foster children can participate in after they've technically aged out of the system and other things that they can do up to age 21 and sometimes beyond, precisely because we do care deeply about these children. We recognize that the long-stay children, the children that have had the most difficulty in obtaining permanency through satisfactory placements, they do need help. And we do our very best to give them that help. But the question is, are our actions so arbitrary to satisfy that really tough, stringent, substantive due process standard? And I just don't think how anyone can look at these defendants. For example, the main defendant in this case at the time of trial was former Commissioner Specia. And everybody, the plaintiffs and witnesses, the district court said, Mr. Specia is a wonderful man. He's dedicated his entire career, professional career, to protecting children. He's done everything that anybody possibly could. And you're not going to read anything bad about what he's done. But that's what 
in at the end the district court had to say well i guess somebody had to be deliberately different it must be him but the district court at the same time recognized the commissioner speech and his staff have the best intentions of of running an effective foster care system but the the district court did make some specific comments claiming that the state was unresponsive and uncooperative you probably need to respond to those what i would love to respond to that judge smith um what the district court said in its final injunction uh well let me take a step back in its 2015 order the district court ordered texas to establish and implement policies and procedures to address these problems and we tried to appeal that order and this court said no that's really not on the table yet because it's the special masters who are going to advise the district court and the district court's going to tell you what those policies and procedures are everyone agreed about that and then in its final order the district court came back and said well we're being recalcitrant because since 2015 we have not been working to establish those policies and procedures that everyone told us we had to wait for the special masters to tell us what they were through the orders of the district court and so i just don't see i mean the special the district court said on the record in its order we were cooperating wonderfully with the special masters they said the parties that means us have made tremendous accomplishments in in what we were working to do in terms of improving the system and then we're surprised to find out when the final order comes out that somehow we've been said to have been uncooperative all along when nobody said a word about that the final order being in 2018 march of 2018 was it march of 20 january of 2018 january 2018 correct so there was a gap between december of 15 and in in january of 18 correct and and i would urge you judge smith to look at our reply in support of our stay motion we addressed this very point because plaintiffs tried to pick up this argument from the district court and say aha you know you weren't you weren't complying with what they called the anticipated remedies meaning you weren't doing what the district court hadn't yet already told you to do which i'm not aware of any case law that says we have to comply with orders that are not effective yet and even the plaintiffs themselves recognized that the only order that was effective prior to the final order was that awake night supervision order that very narrow order that this court had confirmed in its i believe the 2015 when we tried to take that appeal and the court said that's the only thing that's really live at that point and we said okay we're going to pull down our appeal and we will comply with that awake night supervision order and we did did the plaintiffs did the plaintiffs object to the to the interlocutory appeal of the december they argued that the court did not have jurisdiction to hear it and the court essentially agreed with them for the most part and said most of this stuff is not yet live uh i'm not sure that answers your question yeah let me one question the the dfps received nearly a billion dollars in additional funding for the legislature in the last session can uh can you help us a little bit of how that money is being dispensed what is what what is it what problem here is being addressed by that funding there's a lot of different things that that money is going to focus on case workers a lot of it a big chunk of it in both this session and in the last session uh dfps obtained from the legislature large amounts of money to hire additional case workers and they have done that they have brought the case loads down they have been below 20 children per case worker since the time of trial in the last year or two i think they've been at 19 or 18 and really i mean when when the district court is saying let me ask you another question yes is any of the money being directed to the records systems you have an impact system and another system and they don't talk to each other one system uh the courts 
data about the about the children and another other data and the caseworker is a can't access it sounds to me like a, you have some aged, aging records systems there not is any money going to those yes and, uh, and just uh, Commissioner Specia testified to this about you got a 25 million dollars this was the time of trial he had requested that in the 2013 legislative session you got another 25 million I believe in the next session see I'm out of time if I may answer your honor's question to, to do what with to, uh, to, to upgrade the impact system and to improve um, the way it's able to store information and allow caseworkers to enter it more easily and, and reduce paperwork and those kind of things. So yes, improvements are being made on that front. All right, thank you, Mr. Hughes. You've saved time for rebuttal. Thank Mr. you. Getter. Thank you, Your Honor. May it please the court. At trial, the then commissioner of the department admitted, quote, if you don't define, measure, and evaluate a problem, you can't fix it. Here, one of the core issues is, is that the state knows the chronic safety risks in its system, yet consistently has chosen not even to measure them and has never fixed them. For example, uh, Judge Clement, you, you asked about child-on-child -child abuse. The state refuses to track child-on-child -child abuse. So as of today, the state could not tell you which placements have more incidents of child-on-child -child abuse, which areas of the state they simply refused to do that. Thus, the trial judge in the trial in 2014 repeatedly urged the state, why don't you track this? And here we are, four years later, they still don't track it. Uh, judge Higginbotham, you asked about case loads. One of the, one of the main problems that the state has, has had this for decades, and what the state said at, and what the uh, evidence was at trial, is that the state had refused to do a workload study for case workers so that they knew how many children they could handle. Now, after the verdict for the liability in 2015, in 2016, the state actually did a case worker workload study, and, it's, and the trial court no, no, uh, mentioned this in her remedy order. What the state found is that uh, case workers can handle, physically handle, up to 14 children on average across the system. So that's a, that was a remedy phase uh, piece of evidence but it is absolutely consistent with what the, tr the liability phase of this case showed, is that caseworkers are chronically overburdened in the state. So Judge Smith, to get to, ask, uh, to get to one of the points that you made about caseloads being different across, uh, for different children, this case was not about individual children or individual placements. This was a case about a system, the Texas child welfare system. And we, on behalf of the plaintiff children, followed this court's certification order, and both in certifying and, and moving for certification of the case, and the trial judge below followed faithfully this court's rulings on, on legal liability for these kind of cases, both in Hernandez and in Griffith, and this court, again, reaffirmed them in, in, in its 2016 order on denying the stay. And those two cases, Hernandez and Griffith, of the Fifth Circuit said that foster children have the constitutional right to personal security. The state has taken them into custody, and these children have a constitutional right for the state to make sure they have personal security and reasonably safe living conditions. That's exactly the legal standard that the trial court followed. She repeated it, the court repeated it many times in her what liability. The, what in the district court's order, remedy order, is going to respond to the difficulties of the caseload? 
I'm sorry. What in what in the what in the if if the district court's remedial track is followed and pursued, what will it do in addressing the difficulties attending caseload workers? One of the key points. I think no one disputes that it's a difficult job and and enormous turnover, et cetera, et cetera, and that's also one of the core issues in the case. It is indeed, Judge Higginbotham. One of the one one of the remedies that was ordered below was a was caseload standards or caps. And, and while the state objects that it is completely out of the court's authority to do that, in fact, what the state points out is the Connor B case in Massachusetts is so similar, and in that case, the district court and the court and the First Circuit denied, uh, de uh, denied uh, uh, relief. But in fact, in Connor B, they had caseload standards and caseload caps. So what the district court in this case has ordered is in fact something that, a, that when you have a chronically overburdened understaffed system can make sense. Now, what the district court didn't do is it didn't rush to judgment on remedy. This was a two-phase process. We had a two-week, 40-witness trial on liability. And then the district court, we, we believe, using classic restraint by a district court, waited and invited more, appointed two special masters and invited more input by experts and by the state itself. And one of the, some of the, one of the things that uh, we believe the district court pointed out and bothered the district court below was that when the court was looking at remedies and invited the state to provide input on how best do we fix what is an admitted problem. Overworked caseworkers, understaffed uh, system has been around for tw at least 20 years, Judge Higginbotham. And the state, while it provided data and the district court lauded the state for cooperating on providing data, what the state refused to do over and over again, and the district court points this out in her order, is provide solutions for a potential remedy. And the, and the district court said, this is without prejudice. We're not saying you're waiving anything, but we're trying to find the best remedy for caseworkers. So what the district court, well, one well, of the well, solutions well, when, was caseworkers. When, when you're setting caseloads, that's just, that's just overly mechanistic, it, it seems to me. The, the focus should be on the, on, on the results, not on particular numbers. I'm thinking of, by analogy, uh, 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 cases that we have on prison medical care where the standard is also deliberate indifference. The standard isn't how many patients a doctor is supposed to see. The question is whether, whether the, 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 the inmates are getting adequate medical care at the end of the, of, of the process. So when, when the district court sets these uh, these limits on the placement arrays and the foster group homes and sets a maximum number of, of, of case files per, per worker. Maybe that looks good on paper, but it, it, it has little to do, as far as I can see, with the result, which is adequate uh, uh, safety, which is what, what you said was the standard. Yes, Judge Smith, two points. Let me, let me add, I, yes, frame it precisely, that's quite the same, same concern. How do you tie the caseload deficits to unreasonable harm in a constitutional sense? Uh, two points. To answer Judge Smith first, Judge Smith's question highlights that we have two, the court has two issues here. Liability, which we proved through showing the deprivation an unsafe, unsafe system that was known and, and the state was consciously indifferent and the appropriate remedy, and that is subject to a matter of abuse of discretion for the district judge. 
The district judge heard input from lots of sources, including outside experts, child, recognized child welfare experts, and looked at national standards in coming up with these, with these, uh, with the remedy. The district court did not make up these remedies herself, she, the, uh, itself. The district court looked at what other states and what national states looked to. And Judge Higginbotham, um, yes, the remedy has to tie to the constitutional violation. These are not, these are, these are not separable inquiries. I understand remedy and liability, yes, but, but the, the, this question of the, of the connection between the, 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 the caseload itself and <clears throat> the uh, an unreasonable risk of harm is is the core of the is the core of the case. And, and anyways, uh, and, and so it's not that we find that some kind of deficit. I would that you have to have that before you get to a remedy phase, and that'll almost dictate what the remedy is. Yeah, yes, sir. But, but my question is, what what shows that the that the the accepting all of your assertions of deficits with regard to the caseworkers that, that the district court found. What ties that to unreasonable risk of harm? How does that present an unreasonable risk of harm to the children? Yes, Judge Higginbotham. The evidence in the case were that was, as we would all expect, were that was that caseworkers were the responsible, primary caseworkers were the responsible adult to keep track of foster children and keep them safe. They were called critical and crucial, the bedrock, the lifeline, the district court said. Caseworkers and this is a poor analogy, but in a prison system, what keeps the prisoners safe from each other are the guards. And if you have inadequate staffing, like in Brown versus Plata, you will have disarray and, and, and physical harm and other harm in a prison. In a foster care system, what keeps the children safe, undisputed testimony, are the caseworkers, the primary caseworkers. Safe from no, what? From safe. Abuse of other inmates or what else? Safe from physical, sexual, and psychological harm. So in the foster care system, how do we know what that what that is? I, because one of your other concerns has been uh, the, ad, the the complete the want of accurate uh, data with regard to how much abuse goes on. Yes. Your the, the, the your inspection system showed up 74 75 percent error rate yes. with regard to the reporting of abuse. So my question is, what do we know about? I just uh, what. That doesn't mean that, that they're, they're, does that mean that a 74% too low or inaccurate? Two, two things, Judge One, every witness in the case testified that having caseworkers that are chronically overburdened puts children at risk, safety risk. And in fact, the Texas Appleseed 2010 study of the system, which is an independent study, said almost every stakeholder interviewed for that study, this is 2010, just a few years before the trial, said that caseworkers in the Texas system are so overworked they can't do their jobs. Their primary job is to keep the children safe. On the investigation, Judge uh, Higginbotham, what the, what the evidence was at trial is there was a 75% error rate. Alone, that would be concerning. These are supposed to investigate reports of abuse, physical, sexual abuse, or negligent uh, care by caregivers. But what the district court found is they underreported. What does he mean by that? All right, uh, very, very quickly. The state has a, uh, has a system of investigators that are supposed to check every report of abuse, a child, a teacher, somebody reports abuse of a, of a, of a foster child. Um, the state also has a group within itself that does audits of those investigations. And what we found was shortly before trial, just a couple years before trial, that audit group 
looked at a section all of the physical abuse investigations that resulted in a certain finding of unable to determine and and the state's own section said sixty five percent of those were wrong that means some should not have been unable to determine some should have been that abuse actually occurred and some should have been that abuse did not occur so they fundamentally sixty five percent were wrong this is internally within the state the state then did another audit of the same information and more information and this second audit was done by the head of this investigative unit at the state again all this is within the state not something that the plaintiffs did the second audit turned out that the error rate was actually higher it was seventy five percent because they actually looked at both physical abuse investigations sexual abuse investigations and negligent care investigations and so judge Higginbotham what it means is if you if you don't have a system in a foster care system in which reports of abuse physical or sexual abuse which is the safety issue that we're talking about here are not properly investigated you cannot then take remedial action you may and in this case that's exactly what happened eleven children actually they determined in the audit had been sexually had been physically abused and nothing was done about it but this in the first study and then in the second one eight had been physically or sexually abused and nothing was done about it and what the district court was perhaps most upset with which reflects directly to conscious indifference deliberate indifference is that with these findings of this tremendously inaccurate investigation process the same investigators using the same flawed process were coming to a category of unable to determine what the state did next was even worse because the state then didn't look at the ninety percent of determinations that they do which rules out abuse so one of the state's own expert witnesses said at trial ninety percent ruling out abuse and ninety percent of the reports is very troubling to me she said I think it raised questions with me other other witnesses said whereas the state rules out ninety percent in Texas other states typically maybe sixty to seventy percent all right so let me ask you a question you're saying deliberate indifference are you contending basically that it's not really deliberate indifference it's deliberate failing to report in other words if the state reports all this terrible bad behavior by an institution you know it's going to happen somebody's going to close down the foster home the institution so all of a sudden everybody's going to be reported for bad work and they're going to be shut down so they're not going to be places to send these foster children people don't want to be caseworkers I don't blame them so is that what you think is happening Mr. Clement we believe deliberate indifference is akin to willful blindness or a heightened I'm asking whether it's something higher than that if it's an effort not to close them down by failing to report and I actually think Judge Clement you put your finger on a lot of this these defects in the system are interrelated they're not separate defects because what you just highlighted Judge Clement is that one of the things the state does when they do find a violation in a facility is it almost the state almost the evidence was at trial almost never enforces it almost never penalizes the facility so what we found in 6,000 violations right before trial in one of the I believe it's 2013 right before trial 6,000 violations the state issued only 12 corrective actions that's something like 
putting someone on probation, 12 out of 6,000, and one uh, uh, more decisive uh, penalty like a revocation of a license, 6,000. And the reason, Judge Clement, as you just said, is what the state has such a defective placement array, so many gaps in its placement that we believe, although they did not, there's no, they did not admit this at trial, that we believe one of the problems is the state simply is saying we can't properly enforce our uh, uh, findings of violation because we then may lose facilities. And what then the, the Sunset Commission, again, not in the litigation, outside the litigation, shortly before the trial, what the Sunset Commission found is that sort of conduct promotes more violations. And that there was a 79%, I believe the number, 79% recidivism rate for residential facilities in the state because they perceive that they're not gonna be held accountable. So these, all of these defects, respectfully, come together in a, in a kind of a perfect storm of constitutional harm for these children. Because the state, when by, by knowing the problem, but refusing to measure it and never fixing it, is allowing these children to go into a system. We're not talking about homes, specific homes for specific children. The children as a whole are going into a system that is unsafe for them because there's not proper investigations, there's no follow-up, the, the inadequate staffing, the caseworkers are completely overburdened, and there's huge gaps in the placements because the state is not, in fact, the state has never even studied one of the pieces of evidence at trial. They never, the state has never even studied what placements the children need. So as, as uh, uh, the then commissioner said, if you don't measure, you can't fix. And what the state knows that they have a, a, a huge placement problem, and yet they've never done a study, a placement needs study. The district court pointed this out in her liability finding and the remedy finding, she's, she's gonna order it. But the placement study tells you across the state what, where do we need facilities. And by not studying, we believe that's substantial proof of conscious indifference. If you consciously, willfully turned a blind eye to known chronic problems over decades, that's conscious indifference. This case we proved, we believe, we presented this case to the district court and the district court addressed it in the traditional three-step approach. Deprivation, was there a deprivation of a constitutional harm? And there's only one, there's only one set of constitutional rights, personal security and reasonably safe living conditions. Number two, was there culpability? deliberate indifference. The district court didn't adopt the lower culpability standard of uh, departure from professional standards. The district court looked at the more stringent standard of deliberate indifference and found, frankly, sadly, substantial evidence of that. And then in a second step went to remedy. And in the remedy phase, the district court decided liability only on the trial record. In the remedy phase, as I mentioned earlier, the district court invited more information. Some pieces of the information that the district court got on remedy were very telling. In the meantime, after the verdict and before the remedy order, between 2015 and 2018, the state's own top officials were telling the legislature, we have a crisis. We have a crisis in foster care that has been at least a decade in the making. The then commissioner, the new commissioner, said he was shocked one of the standards is shock the conscience. The new commissioner said he you was mean, shocked to you see mean, you how mean Charles, You mean Charles Smith, is that? Uh, uh, no, uh, Ms. Uh, Commissioner Whitman. All right, Commissioner Whitman, all right. Yes, he said he was shocked to see how overburdened the caseworkers were. He says we're outnumbered in our state, the caseworkers are outnumbered in our state by child abuse. 
what the district court then did on the remedy phase is is we believe a very prudent step of bringing in rather than try to figure something out on the district court's staff of volition alone is bring in recognized experts, special masters, Francis McGovern and Kevin Ryan, Kevin Ryan, a recognized child welfare expert who's been appointed to help reform child welfare systems in other parts of the country and solicited their input, had them do more studies, had the state do more studies. Do you support every single item in the injunction? Is every single one of them necessary in order to achieve constitutional standards? A district court faced with a system in such chronic, with such chronic problems has a difficult choice, Judge Smith, in crafting a remedy. And we believe the district court below, with lots of input, and frankly we wish, with one exception, the state's own input, the district court crafted, while it's a detailed remedy order, a workable remedy order. There's no, the district court, the state is not saying it's too expensive today. The state has, in fact, the state is promoting that they have many hundreds of millions of more dollars, which the district court said is, may well pay for all of the remedies. I mean, it just seems to me that the district court's, that the injunction is really unnecessarily cluttered with things that aren't necessary, which makes it a lot harder to focus on the things that are, at least from our perspective. I'll give you an extreme example, which is the requirement of driver's education for kids that are aging out. They may be a perfectly good best practice, but how can that possibly be mixed in with requirements of constitutional standards? We are not suggesting that the, and it wasn't the district court's burden to order remedies that were constitutionally required. The district court is entitled under this court's precedent and the Supreme Court precedent, once it finds a constitutional harm, which it did, in the remedy phase to order remedies to address the harm that may be beyond what the Constitution specifically requires. The driver's education, Judge Smith, is really related to this issue, and we, and Judge Higginbotham pointed out about children aging out. 13 to 1,400 children every year age out of this system. This is part of the, these are children that were part of this class, age out of this system and are sent into the world. What the district court found and what the evidence was is they are completely unprepared to function on their own. In fact, what the state does is these children, one of the studies was these children are, the children that had been in for three years or longer before they aged out had had six different change, six different placements. They've had countless different placements. But what does this have to do with safety and personal security, which you mentioned earlier are the basic concerns? And you're exactly right, Judge Smith, it is a concern, but the children are being put at risk. The state is putting the children at risk by sending them into the world completely unprepared, without even the ability to drive, they have no driver's license, they have no functional skills, they don't know how to take care of themselves. And so what the evidence was at trial from a woman. Well, they've gone to school, they've gotten some, one of the various layers of high school diploma or GED or something like that. Most of them, in fact, one of the state's trial experts said that children that age out of the Texas foster care system are at much higher rates of alcoholism, drug abuse, incarceration, unwanted early pregnancy. As Judge Higginbotham said, 49% of the young girls, these are girls 18 years old, they're pregnant before their 19th birthday. 
70% of the children of these young girls that are pregnant before their 19th birthday go back into foster care. And so, Judge Smith, it would be nice in an ideal world to think that in Texas, the children come out with an education. In fact, they don't. They're moved around so often that they don't have any sort of an education, and these children simply, what the district court found is the children that age out. You're, you're, you're overstating it, and you don't need to overstate it maybe to prevail on some of your points. It, it, it is not true that they get no education, and it's not true that they age out totally unprepared. You, you, you know that that's an overstatement. It may be that the state hasn't done everything that it should or could have done under difficult circumstances, but it just seems to me you, you're, your, your, your credibility is high here, but you undermine it by making absolutist statements like that that you know the record doesn't support. Judge Smith, I, don't, I do not mean to overstate the record. There were, there were witnesses at the trial, and there was evidence, including from this trial expert of the state, Jane Burstein, before she became a state employee, that said that children that age out do have these at a much higher rate, uh, they're, they're more prone to incarceration and the other things I said. There is evidence in the record, Judge Smith. One piece of data you, that you don't allude to is that is a, the Casey Family Program study shows that that, five, that the kids that age out are, have a five times the rate of the general population of post-trust syndrome. That's a pretty, uh, that is twice the rate of a combat veterans. It, it is a very... Say it another way, the kids that come out of here uh, have a five times greater chance of suffering from post-stress syndrome than do combat veterans, so... It, it is, I, and I, and I uh, Judge that, Smith, I, I, I do not mean to overstate lies, the record. I'm just describing a phenomenon. And the record was very significantly impactful on these children, especially the children that age out. One state study early on, it was done, I believe, uh, by another the state comptroller. Let me ask you a different. Let me ask you. What do you think is the? Uh, it's maybe an un, somewhat unfair questions, but that we get to ask unfair questions. The. Um, what do you? What is the? The, the two single most important uh, remedies that should come out of this case. If you had to choose only two, what would be the two that you would point to? I know you say they're integrated, but what would be number one? And, well, I, as an easy, number one is an easy answer, Judge Higginbotham. Case load. Case workers are tremendously What's overburdened. Two? Case standards and case caps would be number one. I'm sorry? Case, case standards and case caps would be the most important remedy. The, the, the state does not um, cap the workload, caseload of any worker. And they don't even have standards for the caseloads. And there are no standards. In fact, the, the head, the executive at the state in charge of making sure that case workers have adequate or not excessive caseloads. She said, I don't even keep track of what professional standards are around the country. I don't know that much about that. She, she, we've quoted that in her brief. That's a very hard question, Judge Higginbotham, on what would be number two. Foster group homes is a, they are dangerous places. Foster group homes. But it's a question that has to be asked because of the, the breadth of the injunction that is there. We have to look very carefully. I, I hear you, Judge Higginbotham. But, parts of it, yes, but then what about these other parts? And li licensing and... Not a zero-sum game. I understand, Judge Higginbotham. Oversight and monitoring is another key issue. This dealt with investigations and enforcing violations. This should, this should, sounds like it should, there should be an easy remedy. If you just get enough investigators and have a process that they do it right and so that their investigations are reliable, 
and then you enforce your findings of violations so you don't encourage repeat violations, that would tr that we believe that would tremendously help improve the safety of the system. Well, you, you mentioned the foster group homes. You're talking about foster group homes with how, how many children? So this is, a, this is a unique to Texas institution. And what they basically did is take foster family homes that can have up to six children, combined biological or adoptive children with foster children, no more than six, with a, with a foster family parent or two, and they supersized it. And in Texas, they said, because of the lack of placements, again, these are interrelated issues, because of the lack of placements, they said, we're gonna make these group homes, we're gonna call these foster group homes, but they didn't add to the rules or regulations or add any significant material training or any other of the safeguards that group homes have. How many children in a foster? Well, up to what, 12 with this caveat, Judge Smith. And how many adults? Uh, it could be one or two, it, depending on how many Even children are in there. It's one or two for six. When you get to 12, it's still one or two. But the big issue, another big issue, Judge, Judge Clement, is, is while there's 12 foster children, Judge Smith, the policies of the, of the state say you have to count the biological or adoptive children in the family as well, and the state doesn't. And so, and, and the evidence of trial was so that you have foster group homes that can have 12 foster children, and any number of adoptive or biological children. So the same one to two parents, depending on how many are in the, in, in the foster group home, are literally watching over an indeterminate number of children. We did, one of the things the state has taken us to task for is we didn't do a case read, which is a generic tool to find out what the problems are. What we did is a narrow investigative uh, data reads, and uh, for example, on foster group homes, we had our expert look at all uh, data of for all the children at foster group homes for a three-year period, 2012, 13, 14. And, she, and the, our expert looked at all of the investigative reports for foster group homes in 2012. So it wasn't self-selected. And what she found were that these were investigative reports of abuse in foster group homes, some 70 different cases. And what she found time and again is the state either ruled out any abuse, mistakenly, erroneously, or that the that the uh, uh, abuse, physical or sexual abuse that occurred could have been prevented or mitigated by just simple uh, precautions that a group home would have had. So I don't mean to overstate, over focus on foster group homes, but they are a dangerous place for these children. And the district court, that was why the district court's first order was that. To get back to your question, Judge Higginbotham, monitoring oversight is very important. The placement array is a difficult problem. We, we acknowledge that. Um, it is not impossible. Other states have had, have, have taken steps to fix it. The first step in this case that we think is an easy step for the, uh, for the state to, to do is to do a study of what the children's placement needs are. Uh, again, if, as the commissioner said, if you don't measure it, you can't fix it. And so one of the big key uh, uh, pieces of evidence of, of difference is they're not even trying to understand what the problem is. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Mr. Yetter, and the, the, the court's grateful to you and your firm for, for taking on this case. You've done an extremely fine, fine job with it. Mr. Hughes, you save time for rebuttal. Thank you, Your Honor. What are those two adults paid for these group foster Your Honor, I don't uh, know off the top of my head, but I can certainly get that information for you, and I may ask if, if uh, uh, my counsel knows that, I'll ask if they can research that while I'm up here and hopefully get you an answer right now, and if we can't, we can try to submit that for you. Um, like you would know. I, and I apologize. Um, the 
a couple points about foster group homes. One is the foster group home study that uh, Ms. Richter did, uh, she admitted this on the cross-examination. She looked at, her foster group home study was based on uh, a group of foster group homes that were investigated for abuse and neglect. And when she was confronted with the fact that this was a biased study, her answer was literally, it wasn't meant to be unbiased. That's what she said. And she said, well, it was meant to confirm my pre-existing conceptions about foster group homes. Her, her testimony on this was pure ipsy-dixit. They don't like the line drawing that the legislature has done in terms of the size of, of the group home. Um, they say, for example, that they want the 24-hour supervision that our legislature has decided yes, should start at 13. The explanation for the, for the uh, what struck me as very high <clears throat> failures to maintain the sibling connections and breaking up these children no one would quarrel with the fact that, the, that, that you, it's more than ideal. It's very important to keep the siblings together. And it, as I read the data, they, they, they were an awful lot of separation of siblings. And, and the, according to the district court, that unnecessarily so. It just, and I don't quite understand that. Why? That doesn't, that doesn't strike me as being unnecessary. I don't know how you explain that other than somebody just being, not being attentive. Couple points on that, Judge Higginbottom. Yeah, sure. First of all, the district court's comparison on that, she looked at one other state's and said that our rate of sibling separation was higher than a single other state's. And if you look at the rate of sibling separation. What is it in Texas? I'm sorry? What is it in Texas? I, I think it is, the rate was in the, and we have this in our brief, 81%, I believe, uh, at least two siblings are kept together out of a group, and I think a 64% of all siblings are kept together in Texas out of. Uh, in 64% of sibling groups, all siblings are kept together. 30% aren't. And that begs the question of, so your question was, why is that happening? And plaintiffs, neither the plaintiffs nor the district court could tell you because they didn't look at any individual circumstances. And it was undisputed at trial by both the plaintiffs' experts and the district court, they recognized that there are, that there are instances in which it is in a child's best interest to be placed out of their home Not county. Not 30% of them, surely. But then the question is, what is the number? And if you don't look, at any individual cases, and you can't, ha and they can't tell you. I would think that it would be a, it distracted me as being rather obvious that you, it would be <clears throat> the unusual situation in which you would separate them if there are such circumstances, and I suspect they may be. And again, our policy is to keep them together whenever it's possible. Uh, and if they want to complain. I understand that's a policy, but what I'm suggesting to you is that according to the district court, that policy is, failing miserably. But the district court doesn't know whether it's failing miserably if it has no idea whether the sibling separations are occurring for good reasons or not for good reasons. And Why that's wouldn't they know because you don't have the data? Because the, because the plaintiffs failed to examine any individual cases. If they had looked, if they had done a case study and, and wanted to criticize, for example, and say, well, we're going to take a random representative sample and look at these children and see why they were separated from their siblings and then criticize and say, we can see that in 80% there wasn't a good reason, that would be fine. That's what, that's what plaintiffs have done in all of these other class action cases. In Connor B., in Cassie M., Baby Neal, Kenny A., uh, Marisol A., all these other cases, a random representative sample of uh, children's case files where they did a case reading on, and then they were able to look and, and make uh, determinations of, are these problems being caused by the policy, or is it something else? Because everyone acknowledges it's really hard to run a foster care system. You're dealing with, and, and uh, council mentioned Commissioner Whitman's uh, comment that you know our caseworkers are up against the, the enemy of these 
these mounting problems i mean there's a lot of drug use out there and and these children are coming into our care they're they're worse off than they used to be texas has a very what's called a very low removal rate and so when children come into our system they're in worse shape compared to kids in other systems it's it's a hard it's a hard thing to do i would point out that in connor be a council mentioned that that he said there were case of captain connor b it's because in connor b the state that was the result of a collective bargaining agreement it wasn't something that was judicially imposed on the state the state had had decided to do it for itself that's fine if a state wants to impose case loan caps great but our state and the vast majority of others don't think it's a great idea and the due process clause doesn't require it and i would say it's undisputed if you look at the the data about the massachusetts foster care system in connor b they were at they were at the absolute bottom of the barrel in just about every statistic texas you look at our cfsr results yeah we're not the best maybe but we do pretty well and if we're satisfying the federal government with their demanding national standards for performance it shouldn't be the case that, that a district court could come along and just say well i choose to disagree with that, I choose, even if the federal government's happy with you, I'm going to say your system is terrible and I'm going to take it over. Mr. Yetter says that in, in Texas, uh, these, these children uh, age out with, with absolutely no preparation for independent living as adults aged uh, 18 and, and over. What, what, what does the record reflect on that in your view? What the record reflects, Your Honor, is that all children upon uh, turning age 16 that are in the PMC receive these preparation for adult living classes, that, or they are, excuse me, they are offered, offered it, they are offered them. 20% take it. Uh, I, 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 you, I, I listen to the rest of that. You offer a program, but the problem is you only, a small percentage of people sign up for it, and I don't know why that's true. And I don't know why that is either. We well, offer children. Without, without a caseworker, without somebody there giving them some counseling, they don't know what's good for themselves. They are, the children have a strong incentive. We offer them financial incentives if they complete the program to help them transition to adult living. They can get uh, tuition waivers if they want to go to college. We inc absolutely encourage to children to take these preparation for adult living classes. And unfortunately, some children, the reality is, don't make great decisions. And it's hard to tell a teenager if they really don't want to do some, it's hard to make them do it. Do you offer any technical school training, be a plumber or electrician or something like that? Uh, if what would be available to we don't offer it separately, but if they have it available to them through their educational system uh, in high school or something like that, they could have that. But we do. Uh, they, they, they attend local schools. They do exactly. Judge Smith, you pointed this out. They're not. And, and upon and, and as you just said, but as I understand it, in Texas, uh, 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 after after aging out, uh, they get zero tuition, completely free tuition at any state or community supported school community community college state university whatever that's exactly right two percent of them take it up uh, judge higginbotham i will get back i, I think I the percentage is three percent so they're not going they're not these aren't college-bound kids them they go through this system look stop for a moment the legislature put out a huge amount of money here this this social phenomenon i don't suggest the courts necessarily answer this and i don't have an answer to it either but Stop for a moment and look at this thing as a, as a machine that goes of itself. You, you are, if, 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 if money would solve it, you could, you'd come out ahead to spend the money in front instead of picking up these kids coming back into the criminal justice system and feeding back into the same system. But a substantial percentage of your intake come uh, are just sort of almost a genetic flow, flow right back in. Now that, that's the overall picture that is presented here. 
the legislature appears to be throwing some money at it I, to, their, to their credit. Uh, the real problem here is translating this into a system and, and making it better, and whether we're the, we're the, we're the instruments only in a small way in that. Uh, we, we, we can't run the institution. Apparently, no one else can either. But <laughs> and that's, this is a problem for every state, Judge Higginbotham. I agree with you about these, you know, these, these circular systems and the problem. But everybody's trying to deal with this and trying to do it in different ways. And we get criticized. The district court criticized us for trying to be innovative. For example, with our foster care redesign, the district court said, "Well, that's not a program other states the have. Other so state. therefore, you're deliberately indifferent." I don't take a lot of comfort in that. When I think about twenty. Seven, the general public has no idea that we have 27, 28,000 kids here in the custody. I mean, on the federal side, we've got 120,000 illegal children unaccompanied there. And in the indeterminate sentencing program at TYC, aging out to age 18, we've got another few thousand. That's a huge number of children in the custody of government in this state. That's a, that's a reality. And so I don't, I don't mean that. To, it, it's that the context in which this occurs. And, and the question is, is there some magic bullet? Is there some easy solution that we're not doing that some other state is doing? I would encourage your honors to look, uh, for example, Dr. Miller and some of the other experts on the plaintiff side had worked in Kentucky and Tennessee. If you look at the CSFR numbers, they said, we did all these wonderful things. And I agree, I'm sure they made great improvements in the systems. But look at the data the federal government is measuring them on uh, that's in the record for the um, Texas does better than those states on some measures, particularly on permanency, and we do worse on them on some measures. You're certainly not going to see that they're blowing us out of the water, uh, even though they've adopted caseload caps. And Let me ask you a yes or no question. Is the reason that Texas doesn't put the caps on the caseload um, because it would eliminate a considerable number of, um, of students who would not be, they would not have the opportunity to have a caseworker? If there's a cap, if the caseworker can only have 12, and that leaves out 20 more kids in that area, is that why you're not announcing caps? Can I say something other than yes or no, Judge Coleman? Okay. Um, it, part of it is is that if you can't control the number of kids that are coming to the system, to draw a hard cap is pretty impractical because what are you going to do? Are you going to just tell say no to that kid who needs who needs care? Uh, the other part of it is we just think it's not a very looking at at caps, just a rigid caseworker cap or, or the number of kids per caseworker is a very crude metric and it doesn't take into account individual abilities of the caseworker and it doesn't take into account the situation of the kids that may have, if you're in TMC, the temporary conservatorship, if they have families and the caseworker's dealing with their families, that's something you should account for. Okay, I take that as a yes. Thank you. Thank you. What, 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 does, what does the record tell us about, uh, are, are, are the caseworker visits monthly or how often are they? They're required to be monthly, I believe, and uh, we don't make it 100% of the time, but I think the record says it's about 95% of the time. And we do use the ICU workers to help us accomplish uh, that requirement, but again, there's nothing wrong with that policy choice. That's either a caseworker or an ICU. And, and Your Honor, they, the, the testimony in the record was they compared them to, I think Dr. Carter said, well, they're like substitute teachers. Well. Yeah, but do people say substitute teachers aren't off. teachers? I mean, they're, they're meeting with the kids, they're checking on them, they're asking them questions. Uh, you know, if, if, the, if the federal government is happy with what we're doing, we don't think it should be up to a, a district well, judge. I see, the ICU, if, if I understand the record, is, is far different from a caseworker. And they, 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 they kind of fill in and do that, but, but as I read this record, they're, they're really coming up and validating the person's there 
and they're checking off the, the that's what, they had four questions they asked, and they're, they're, less, they're in less than an hour with the typical presentation. And that's not a caseworker, that's just somebody covering to make sure you're still accounting for people. Again, that problem, if you have anecdotal testimony of one person saying, well, they only do this, I mean, to, to invalidate the entire system based on a little bit of anecdotal testimony when they failed to do a case read of a random representative sample we think is, is grossly improper. Thank you. We'd ask the court to, to vacate the injunction. Thank you, Mr. Hughes. Your case is under submission. Next case.